This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. In today's episode, I got to meet with my good friend and fellow game master, Tim, who was the first person to ever GM a game for me. We dive into the value of running pre-written adventures, melding your preferred playstyle with your players, and how everyone has what it takes to be a GM. And hey, if you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we now stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. Tim, do you remember when we tried to play the Serenity role-playing game in high school? What do you mean tried? That was awesome. Okay, <laughs> I forgot about that. I have the rule book somewhere still. Yeah, no, that was actually my first ever exposure to like what a TTRPG was. And I remember just having no idea what to do. Um, I, I don't think anyone at that table had any idea what to do except Eli, who was just, I'm going to be a sniper. And yeah. that's all he wanted to do with anything. Yeah, and he rolled four ones on a D12 in a row. It was brutal. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, do you want to just introduce yourself real quick? Sure, I guess. Uh, yeah, so I'm Tim. Um, I've been DMing since probably high school. Um, mostly right now I've been running, uh, fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, um, which I'm a huge fanboy of. Um, I think they did a lot of things right with it. Uh, I've had dabbled in a couple of other, uh, TTRPGs, uh, example being the aforementioned Serenity, uh, which is a lot of fun. I will give it that. It's got some clunky rules, but that is that is a fun system. I really enjoyed it. Um, I've also been playing around recently with the uh, Fantasy Flight Games uh, Star Wars RPG. Um, and then I actually haven't gotten a chance to run it yet, uh, but I bought the book for uh, the Legend of the Five Rings RPG, which looks like that's going to be a lot of fun when I play that one. That is, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I actually, so as someone who has relatively little diversity in their TTRPG portfolio. Like I always love talking with like well-versed individuals like you because I, I feel like you've got um, a certain perspective or appreciation for a lot of like D&D's mechanics and design decisions that they've made, whether you agree with them or not. Um, it just, it has a more kind of storied lens to it, I guess. Um, so you also, uh, you also mentioned that you're like a fanboy of fifth edition. Uh, let's just get started. Um, so what is it that you love about D&D? So I guess what drew me to Dungeons and Dragons in the first place was probably what drew most people to Dungeons and Dragons in the first place is the idea of I can role play out as a barbarian with a flaming axe and chop goblins in half. And that's always fun. You know, why not? Um, the, my real interest in it though, started expanding a lot more once I started 
uh, either writing my own stories for it, um, which I've, I've done a couple times with relative degrees of success and some crash and burns. Um, and then uh, once I started running a lot of the uh, pre-written modules um, and actually being the one to engage the players in a story, um, I, I found a lot more interest in it. So uh, just exploring that world and just the idea of you're, you're, you're basically the lens that the other players are going to see this world through. Um, and that it, it's a lot of responsibility but I very much enjoy it and trying to stay as versed as I can in these stories because it's, it's the same, the same books that you would have read as a kid, but now you're the one telling the story to it. You know, I probably should have mentioned this before we got started, <laughs> but my whole purpose with this whole uh, podcast, uh, Dragon Mind, is um, one of the things that I we're trying to do is look through the infinite lenses of Dungeons and Dragons to find our best selves through gaming. Um, and, you know, by lenses, there's a, everyone that comes to the game has different life experience that they're going to view the game through. I think we cut out. Nope. Are you still there? Yeah, oh, still wow. Here. Oh, I thought you froze for a second. Aren't I? No, I just wasn't moving. <laughs> yeah. You were just listening. Like, you know, a thoughtful Intently. person. Um, so yeah, we're trying to view the game through, um, through the infinite lenses of D and D because everyone that comes to the game is going to have very different backgrounds and experiences. Right. So, uh, for example, Adam is a music teacher. Um, Ian, who loves creative writing and storytelling, also has a background in biology. That's what he majored in. So a lot of times when I try to say biology or psychology stuff, he's quick to correct me on the updated science of it all. Um, but, uh, but I actually thought it was interesting that you mentioned that you run pre-written uh, modules. Have you found one that you prefer, like, like pre-written versus um, something you tried to come up with on your own? And just why? So part of it is, I don't want to say laziness, but it's laziness. Um, so the thing with the pre-written modules is they're, for the most part, looking at you, Tyranny of Dragons, um, for the most part, the pre-written modules are fantastic. Um, there's always going to be issues with them because the, the authors can't cover every possible scenario that your players are going to go through. Um, no matter how much prep work you've done, you're the only person that knows your players. The person writing the actual campaign doesn't know them. I know that if you throw any sort of a prison at these people that I run pick groups for, oh, we're going to have a prison break and it's going to be detailed. Um, so I, I kind of keep that, that sort of stuff in mind. So one thing with like, um, like especially if you're going to be running a lot of the more sandbox type ones that they have, they'll give you very small snippets of information um, on these different locations. And it's on you to basically okay, the party is starting to head in that general direction, you know, geographically, I should probably have something prepared in case they go to X, Y, or Z location. Um, so that's when you start have to write, write your own adventures in there, um, even though the campaign itself is already pre-written. The reason I say it's laziness is because I run three games. So having to homebrew three different games uh, with weekly content is way too much. So I very much prefer using the framework and uh, architecture provided by uh, the Wizards of the Coast authors to there, thereby give a proper adventure to my players. 
Just to give a little context, Tim is also a police officer, <laughs> which means that there are a lot of scheduling times on his, uh, like, demanding scheduling. Uh, how do I want to put this? There, there's a lot of demand for your time, right? So yeah. there's, there's going to, how you view your prep is going to be different than somebody who is maybe like more of an entrepreneur or someone who's trying to DM professionally that's going to have like different amounts of prep time to kind of come up with a lot of this stuff. So I agree with you that a lot of times using a module can be a lot more efficient, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't give you room to be creative or take your own spin on things. Oh yeah. So um, I'm actually running uh, right now. So first of all, real quick on the, the prep time aspect of it, most of my prep time, is done at work so i'll be sitting in a median somewhere running radar typing up a dnd &D adventure all of a sudden i hear Ree! as the radar goes off and i gotta throw everything in the air and go chase a car but yes i it does it does change the the prep work itself um but like just for example um one of the games i'm running online right now um it's actually my first time using uh roll 20 which i've had pretty good experience with so far like that's been a lot of fun um but we're running uh, Tomb of Annihilation. And I've already run Tomb of Annihilation before. I had some issues with it. Um, there were some things I felt that it was really rushing you through, and then other things that it was really drawing out. So with this group, because it's a relatively new group, and everyone knows Tomb of Annihilation is going to kill everybody, um, I basically have been rerunning it with my own plotline. I've dropped the tomb itself completely. Um, and basically, it's a hex crawl uh, through the jungle with them exploring all of these fantastical locations. So some of these, like I was mentioning before, some of these locations that there's just maybe a paragraph on in the book, I've been writing more detailed information on so that my players can explore the jungle. Uh, so far, they've tamed two dinosaurs um, with more to come because uh, they're, they're greedy like that. Um, and basically, they're just going in, kicking in doors, finding, finding loot, and then bringing it back to the city for sale. And they're, they're having a lot of fun with it. Um, it's completely different from how the campaign itself is written, but I'm still using that geographical map and the basic information from the campaign as a starter for it. Um, I've dropped the death curse because I thought that that was way too much of a ticking clock. The first time I ran this campaign, I had all of these amazing side adventures planned. And everyone says, but we only have 30 days to get this done. So we skip that. I'm like, well, that makes sense. I don't like your choice, but it actually makes a lot of sense. So I just removed that completely. So there's no time frame on it. Um, my wife is a huge fan of uh, R.A. Salvatore's works. Um, I will freely admit that I never read them growing up. Um, and just got thrown into D&D. &D. That was my introduction to the Forgotten Realms. Um, but she's a huge fan of the lore and of particular characters. So for this one, I actually shoehorned in as a patron of theirs, uh, Jarlaxle. Um, took him straight out of uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist, repurposed him into Tomb of Annihilation because my wife loves the character. Um, and it's, it actually works very well. As he's, a, he's a pirate and a... Uh, uh, purveyor of fine things, which you can find uh, plenty of gold and magic items in the jungle. So it, it's been working out very well. 
Well, just to kind of circle back to um, you mentioning how you're running Tomb of Annihilation a little bit, uh, for the DMs out there who might be newer that are looking for some quick tips to getting good quick, um, one of the things that I always mention to a newer DM is the value and the impact of how you choose to organize your content and what that might say to the style of play that you're interested in. Because one of the things I also really like about just the... Um, the various modules of fifth edition is that the styles of games are all very unique. So if you're running Waterdeep Dragon Heist, that's going to be a little bit more political intrigue, probably a little less combat unless your uh, your players yeah. are particularly bloodthirsty. Or, or in the case of my party, particularly stupid. Well, you know, they, well, they don't realize that at level three, they can't take on anything and every anything and everything that I throw at them. So when I'm throwing at them, a CR9 enemy, but yeah. it's in a political situation where you're supposed to talk your way through it and they just start drawing weapons. And I go, oh God, here we go again. Roll the dice. Yeah. Um, but like you mentioned, Tomb of Annihilation has a hex crawl element to it. That's going to just be fundamentally different with how players interface with the game than something like Dragon Heist, which is supposed to be a little more political intrigue. Um, which is also very different than something like uh, like a one-shot from like Tales of the Yawning Portal or Ghosts of Saltmarsh, which is those adventures are much smaller in scale and a lot more contained. Um, so do you have anything to speak on how you choose to organize your uh, content or, um, or just like your preferred style of play? I have a preferred style of play and then there's a style of play that I actually go with. I am more of a fan of the political narratives and the diplomacy aspect of it. Um, so like I, I mentioned earlier, I picked up the book for uh, The Legend of the Five Rings role-playing game, um, which is very, very little combat and a lot of court intrigue in a, an East Asian sort of society. Um, I love that stuff. My table does not. <laughs> My table is very much a kick in the door, kill the bad guy, sell the loot afterwards kind of thing. Um, they'll, they'll take anything that isn't nailed down. So that being said, rather than me running a campaign in the way that I would prefer to run it, because I enjoy it, I do try to take into as much uh, acknowledgement I can of how everyone else wants to play, because I'm not the only person at the table. Like uh, most of my games are six or seven people that I'm playing with. So I'm trying to make sure that everyone at that table enjoys themselves. And you know what? I have just as much fun running a combat encounter as delivering, you know, a nasty monologue from a psycho villain. And I can still get a monologue in every once in a while. Um, there's plenty of times where I get to tip my own play style in there. Um, but that's more of just to break up the, uh, the dungeon crawls. It's a really interesting point that you made um, that a lot of times as DMs, we have certain preferences of things we get excited to run, but you're, you're absolutely right that play uh, table to table um, and just even switching out like one player for another player can completely like flip the dynamics of the party um, and like how they prefer to navigate the various encounters that you, um, you set up for them. So in terms of style too, uh, does your table or do you uh, prefer a more sandbox approach where you just kind of like, it's more like Skyrim where there's a bunch of quest hooks, kind of take whatever you want. Or um, do you like having, for lack of a better term, a more railroaded experience 
where there's kind of like a main plot that your players buy into. So I've, first of all, I've never been a fan of the multiple uh, plot hooks uh, concept. I've always found that just both as a player and as a DM, um, it, it feels somehow even more railroady than an actual railroad because it's, Hey, look at these plot threads that I'm spoon feeding you and that, you know, all right, go ahead and follow it. Um, you can pick, but guess what? They all go the same direction. Um, I, I'm more of a fan of a sandbox with rails where you have an open world. There's, there's a plot that you are following but you don't necessarily, as the DM, plan on how they're going to follow about that plot. And so on the, on the times where I've done completely homebrew, um, what I try to do more often is give a scenario of this is going to happen at this time and then see how the players respond to it. And then from a session-by-session basis, if I, say that, if I see that the players players respond in one particular way to whatever scenario I've given them, that's going to change how I'm going to write future sessions. Um, but that being said, it's still with, I still have my bad guy has, you know, stages of their plot that they're going to move through, regardless of how the players respond to it. If they choose to not respond to it because I can't make them do so, bad things will happen. Um, so one example, and we ended up, uh, re- regrettably, I had to switch uh, campaigns just because I was completely overworked at the time. Um, but one example that we had was uh, I was running a Eberron game in uh, the city of uh, Stormhome. Um, what I had going on with it was there was a big bad guy plot, basically, with an Eldritch device. Bad things would happen. Um, the party, for the most part, decided to just nope out of that city um, because they they realized they had they they were in too much trouble just by being there. So they said, "We're out. We're not playing this game. We're we're gonna go somewhere where it's safer. Like there's problems going on here. We're mercenaries. We're not getting paid enough for this." Um, so what I was going to have had that game continued is they would start hearing about what happened in the city because the city would have been destroyed because they did not take that chance to act. So any they can do whatever they want, but the railroad's gonna happen whether they're on it or not. They don't necessarily have to follow it, but the plot will still continue. Yeah, um, there's a lot of interesting points that you just brought up that I want to spend just a little bit unpacking. So um, so first being, uh, I found a lot of success in just asking my players to basically be hooked into the adventure, like before the game even starts. So like for my, uh, the session zero for my latest custom campaign, which also is very very heavily based on Eberron like if you if you look at like Eberron and you look at my custom campaign map you're basically like oh that's where Ondare is and that's where Sire is <laughs> like um it's a very and just thin- just a quick a quick shout out to Keith Baker because Eberron is perfect just chef's kiss of a campaign setting Actually, let me let me pause my train of thought for a moment, which is ironic. We'll come back to that. But um, so uh, do you have a favorite D&D setting that you um, maybe because you also mentioned that sometimes your players differentiate opinions. And so like there's like what you prefer and what you run. Do you have like a favorite setting that you just like versus a setting that you prefer to run? Um, so I am a huge fan of Eberron. I've been a fan of Eberron since third edition. Um, Eberron has always been to me the quintessential 
perfect D and D setting where it's that it's that combination of everything awesome. Like there's just there's so much rule of cool going on there that no matter what you do, it's going to be great. Um, I love the the science and fantasy combination of the idea of having like instead of an industrial revolution, have a magical revolution where basically they've now industrialized magic. Um, so you can have a modern-esque world uh, completely fueled by magic uh, and throw in some halflings riding on dinosaurs. And I mean, I'm sold. That's awesome. Um, generally, I run Forgotten Realms, um, but that's more of out of an ease of access to the setting because there's so many campaigns that are pre-written for that. Um, and then it's, it's a setting that most people are going to be familiar with. So like I was saying, my wife is a huge fangirl over the books. Um, so being able to play in that setting and being able to introduce characters that she knows, um, is always fun. Like when I first introduced her to Jarlax, so who, for those who, who haven't read through, uh, Dragon Heist, uh, spoiler alert, you don't know it's him for quite some time because of that sweet hat of disguise he has. And when she started putting clues together and realized, oh my God, this is, this is exactly who I think it is. And I had him whip off the hat dramatically. I thought she was going to have a heart attack at the table. Um, but no, that was, that was easily one of my favorite moments as a DM. But generally my players prefer Forgotten Realms and it makes it a lot easier to run uh, because of all the pre-written adventures. But Eberron is where my heart is, absolutely. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I think one of the comments I had when I first like read through Rising from the Last War, which is when I first did my like deep dive into Eberron lore, was um, I, I just love the attitude of everything, where every like player race had a distinct function in the world. Um, as like uh, a personal thing, when I was reading through a, and and accepting a lot of the criticisms of like the mainstream lore in the player's handbook, I'm like, halflings are just boring. Like there wasn't anything specific that was halfling. They even they're just like they're farmers and they don't really like adventuring, but sometimes they adventure and it it just it was very hard to find a unique place in the world that was definitively halfling. But looking at Eberron, where there are things like halfling gangs in the cities, but also halfling tribes riding dinosaurs in Talenta. Like, it was just, it was what I had always wanted for that player race. Um, and even dwarves have their own unique spin uh, for Eberron with their, uh, their relationship with the parasite weapons and stuff. So I just, I, I agree with you. Eberron is definitely my favorite official so setting. And it's by far the most successful homebrew campaign I've ever tried. Absolutely. Now, my my favorites, my favorite thing with Eberron, because you were talking about the the different homes it gives to all the races. Um, I I think my favorite thing about it is how just completely defying of any expectation it is for any sort of racial stereotypes. So a lot of campaign settings is going to be who are the orcs. They are the big, mean, brutish people who are just out there to make teeth necklaces and, you know, destroy your town. Um, but not in Eberron. In Eberron, they are some of the oldest uh, races living on Corvair. They exist uh, in harmony with nature as druids and actually long ago defended the world from an otherworldly invasion. I mean, they're, they're these 
peaceful shamanistic characters that you don't see in other campaign settings. Um, so with, with that, with the halflings, I love how they really made the uh, half elves, the Korovar, into their own race rather than it just being, oh, okay, you know, there's, you know, you're a, you're a half elf that was raised in a human society versus a half elf that was raised in an elven society. Really bringing them home with the uh, dragon marked houses to say that no, these are half elf families. Like this is a half elf race. They're their own. Uh, contained, self-contained uh, group. Um, having the elves uh, be the good death-worshipping uh, mages, which I thought was such a cool twist of the uh, the light-imbued undead. Like, that was just the coolest thing ever. So, yeah, I, I love how they really turned all of your expectations for for what traditional D&D is supposed to be. They took everything and they flipped it upside down. And they said, I'm, we're gonna take every preconceived notion you have and we're gonna throw it completely out the window. This is our own world. Well, and I think that it's also really helpful for um, like long time fans of fantasy in general. I'm not even talking about D&D players. I mean, just like a lot of times I'll have an adult, like be a new player at one of my tables and they'll, have certain assumptions like Tolkien-esque you know ideas of what it means to be a dwarf or an elf and I find that Eberron is so helpful because it gives them a way to break free of a lot of that habit um, in order to really dive deep into the character they want to play so it's not I'm going to just play Gimli with a different name it's you know, what, what is my dwarf going to look like? What's their relationship with dwarven culture, if they have any? And, uh, or are they just like a member of the city of Sharn? Are they just another citizen where, you know, their dwarven ancestry is just their biology, not really their culture? So it's just, I, I find it to be a really interesting, thought-provoking way to really help new players understand the positive potential of an imaginary space like this. Absolutely. And I, I think touching on touching on Sharn real quick, I think Sharn is the perfect example of that, where you have this massive cosmopolitan city. And so, yes, you it, it's, it's ju just like just like real life. If you were to take actual New York City, OK, you're going to have uh, areas where immigrants are going to populate, where the old country's culture is strong. And then you have other people where it's like, dude, I'm, from, I'm a New Yorker. You know, there's, it, it doesn't matter who, who, you know, generations down the line where they came from, they're New Yorkers. And so it's that, it's that idea that it's the same thing with fantasy races. And so you can have um, very insulated uh, elven enclaves, dwarven enclaves. Um, you'll have uh, the, the entire Warforged communities that are living uh, in the, the underbelly itself, uh, in the cogs. Um, but when you're going about day-to-day -day life in the street it's just such a a conglomerate of just just people from all different walks of life short tall you know a gnome gnome doing business with a dragonborn and no one bats an eye it's totally normal you know in any other fantasy setting it would be strange but in Sharn, it's you know you you've, you've got bugbears working as you know bouncers for nightclubs like and everyone just says oh well it's just a bouncer, you know, no one's really thinking about like any of the, the racial aspects to it, unless you get into obviously the immigrant groups, um, a couple of them are a little more insulated, but even like the Boromar clan, um, who is a, 
uh, halfling crime family, um, they employ a large number of non-halflings uh, because you know what? Crime's a business and <laughs> not hiring these people would be stupid. Uh, so it's, I, I love how they have that set up. It really, really opens um, the mindset for the players where if you know you're so used to going into Dungeons and Dragons and being uh, orcs are bad, goblins are bad. If I see a goblin, I shoot a goblin. Well, guess what? The guy that owns this business is a goblin. <laughs> you know, and it it really forces them to open their eyes and like like look at it in a completely different light. So, um, to uh to bring it back a little bit, um, before we got off on this rabbit hole, which That's I found fine. to be I'm a sorry. wonderland. I go um, I go I go really deep into the 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 crazy talk for a bit there so no that's totally that's what this is here for um so yeah i definitely one of the things i did for this new campaign because uh, the la the homebrew campaign i tried before was basically here's a plot hook it's kind of what you mentioned my players ignored it a bad thing would happen to that city and they'd be like well on to the next thing and then i'd offer a plot hook they'd reject it and then another city would blow up. And it was just like this constant, like, what are you really looking for then? So for this new campaign, which I run very differently than anything else I've done, one of the things I said up front is that, you know, you're all hired as basically mercenaries for <laughs> the, uh, the, the way it's set up is that the Lightning Rail Company owns a mercenary business that's kind of like a bunch of jack of all trades. And they're, they're just... So they're, they're the Amazon delivery of, do you have an issue that's as small as a cat is in a tree or, you know, you need your caravan defended from marauders? We'll, there were the swift guard. We'll be there in a moment's notice, you know, two-day delivery. So um, one of the things I two said- Two-day delivery of hardened mercenaries. I love it. Yeah. So I, I started with, I'm going to prep a job assignment. It is assumed that by participating in this game, you're going to bite my hook. <laughs> <laughs> that if anything, if you need a motivation, it's you're going to get paid for doing this assignment. So that way, rather than go, well, my character wouldn't do this assignment, it becomes, well, why would my character do this assignment? Even if it's something that they might not normally do, it kind of triggers the players to ask the question of, well, what would the circumstances have to look like for my character to bite this hook? So that way we kind of eliminate that problem at the get-go. Um, and then the other thing, and, and this is the metaphor I use for how run my, I run my games, and it sounds similar to how you're running yours. Uh, the metaphor I use now is that my games are kind of like a train, like a lightning rail, um, where they start off in the first car, and what they choose to do in that car is completely up to them, but the only thing forward is the next car. And if they kill all of the NPCs in that car, or if they let some live, or if they let all of them live, that's going to affect what happens in the next car over. It might be one of those NPCs that they spared betrays them. It might be that they turn into an ally. It might be that if they killed all the NPCs, it makes the next fight easier, but maybe they don't feel morally right about it. But they basically go from train car to train car until they get to the end, and then they get off for the next train. Um, it actually should probably, I should also mention, pretty much when I run a session, they're a series of connected one-shots. So each time a player plays with me now, there's never a we pause and then we pick up. 
there's this story will have a beginning, middle, and end, and we play until we're done. And then at the next, what you do in this session might affect what happens in the next session, or you get to play with your character's long-term development, but we're never going to stop in the middle of a major combat. It's always going to kind of lead, they're, they're connected, but they're still closed episodes, if that makes sense. No, I, I, I like that style to it. Um, one thing that, because I've, I've run into the exact same issue several times, and what, <clears throat> what I ended up doing, which I found most effective, was just pulling the group aside. When you, when you start to see that you're, that you're throwing out hooks and nothing is biting, um, and, and you've got six people at your table, and none of them are biting on that hook, um, I've, I actually had a couple sessions where, where and I've, I've had to do it a couple times with different groups, um, where I pull everyone aside. I say, hey, we're not playing today. Like, we're going to talk. What do you guys want? Because it was like I was saying earlier, I'm not the only person at that table. I may want to run this campaign that's going to run in an X, Y, and Z format, but they may not be interested in that. And so the most success I've had with that was when I straight up pull them out and I say, hey, look, I'm throwing out all these hooks. No one's biting on them. What do you guys want? Because if they tell you what, you what they want, you can then formulate a hook specifically for them with that in mind of, okay, if, 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 you're, if your character isn't motivated by any of this, what is your character motivated by? Because then I can start tugging on those strings. Um, at the same point in time, though, uh, it does fall on the player a little bit uh, to go with it. And this is something I'm guilty of when I'm a player um is the oh well it's not what my character would do and i have to find you know start like smacking myself and say no 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 we're playing a game <laughs> okay there's there's a there's the ability of on the outside on the on the out, out front of it it might seem okay my character wouldn't do this um but it does fall on the player at a certain point to come up with like you said the reason that their character would so you're Part of being in a party is the assumption that you are going to work with other people. Um, and I've never been a fan as a DM of party conflict. Um, I don't like pitting party members against each other. I, I feel that you all need to be on the same team. Um, and so when I find myself as a player doing it, there's a little smack on the hand and I say, no, stop it. Stop it. Put those dice away. Um, you know, as, as I, I, as a player, I have to make my character rationalize why I'm working with people that I might not agree with. I don't have to say that I'd agree with them, but there's still has to be a reason I'd be working with them. So there's a few, again, a few things that just got mentioned that I want to unpack a little bit, which is awesome. Um, the first, uh, I have a very controversial statement that I've, I've said to a few people and I've gotten hot, cold, mixed reception toward, and I'm, I'm curious what your initial thoughts are on this, which is metagaming is mega gaming. And what I mean by that isn't metagaming like you as a player know that this monster is vulnerable to fire. So even if your character wouldn't know you use fire damage, I don't mean that. But the idea that when you practice role playing a separate personality, like a character that's not you, you're also inherently practicing empathy and metacognition where you're thinking through, you know, if this character is going to behave, why would they behave like that? What would be most representative for me to choose right now? What's going to convey this character, but also thinking as like a human being, what's going to provide and contribute the most enjoyment 
and rewarding experience at the table. So it's funny, you're always like doing that dance where it's like, how do I honor who my character is like authentically without also creating unnecessary conflict that en will end up really kind of taking away a lot of enjoyment at the table. So that's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm going for is metagaming is mega gaming. Uh, what are your, I, what are your I thoughts actually, on it? I actually agree with that. Um, so, so thinking on it, the, there's a lot of emphasis uh, on the DM as being a storyteller. And one thing that people really gloss over is that they're not the only storyteller at that table. And really all the, all the DM is supposed to do is create the scenario for the players to act in. And the players are doing just as much writing, just as much storytelling as the DM is. It's just kind of overlooked because they're, they're playing a game. You know, they're not doing the prep work for it. They're not, you know, pen to paper writing stuff down. So, the, so it's kind of looked over like it's not really storytelling. But I, I feel that it really is because the, the DM is not the driving force at that table. It's the six other people. That's who's going to make that end decision, who's going to be pushing the story forward. And it does fall on the player of act in a way that, you know, you would, it, you don't have to necessarily act how you would act but you have to keep in mind how the character that you've written would act, but you're also telling a story. And so it's just like you said, it's the, the aspect of what's going to be best for the story. What's going to be best for storytelling. Am I going to have to agree with this in the short term, which is going to cause some uh, social issues with the rest of the party in the long term, but at least I'll go with them because I understand that this needs to be dealt with and we need to make an action on it. Um, and that's something that I, I love campfire sessions of, hey guys, so you didn't agree with each other on this last session. You want to talk about it over a campfire and then have you know said characters who now have beef with each other sort of try to work that out. Um, I very much enjoy that. I think that it's it's a way that you can sort of resolve these inter-party, interpersonal issues without it actually affecting gameplay and coming up at a more critical time. So that was such a beautiful quote. I wrote it down because I'm going to share it in our Facebook group. Um, Which about one I said a lot. DMs not the the emphasis of DMs being storytellers, but players are also storytellers. I'm actually going to add a little bit to that in that. I think something that doesn't get emphasized enough is that DMs are game designers and really they're designing an environment and an inner, they get to choose how the players interface with the world, right? Because one of the things that comes up a lot is a player can't act unless a DM gives them information to act on. So, you know, the, the DM is the player's eyes, ears, their sensory input into the world. Um, and the DM is designing encounters to promote a certain kind of experience from their players, whether that's a challenging experience or a dynamic experience or one with multiple solution routes. They're, they're still in, if you boil it down, a designer of an environment of a, of a gameplay experience. And it's the characters that get to choose how the plot goes, even though the DM has creative storytelling input. And to add on to it, I think you also just made an important distinction, which is that you, you had mentioned you don't like party conflict, but there's a difference between the players agreeing into exploring their characters having conflict 
and players to players having conflict. So yes. for example, uh, one of my favorite, I think this was Cody from Taking 20 mentioned this, but he was in a game where there was a party rogue that was trying to steal the treasure before the rest of the party members could catch up to them. And he said as a paladin, you know, his character, what his character would do would be to stop the rogue or tell the rogue that what they're doing is wrong or fight the rogue or something. But he as a player recognized the kind of storytelling angle the other player was going for and said, you know what, right now my paladin is looking at something else. His attention got drawn to a book on the bookshelf. That gives your, your rogue time to steal the treasure. Maybe that comes up later. So it's, I think that it can be very powerful for a table when the players acknowledge that, <laughs> that they want to explore some very deep RP arc without themselves becoming too emotionally entangled in the storytelling process as well. Uh, it's just, that's a, it's a fascinating thing to, to uh, recognize. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, so, and it kind of falls on the DM as well to really sort of look at who you're dealing with because there's a difference between like, like you mentioned the story there of <clears throat> a player doing something such as, you know, trying to like pocket some of the treasure before the rest of the party gets there specifically for the purpose of this coming up later. Uh, it's very different from that and a toxic player who is just, I want an unfair share of all loot because I want to, I want magic items. I want to buy something, whatever. Um, and I think it really, it falls on the DM to try to, notice that and notice the difference between the two because as soon as you started telling the story my gut instinct as a dm is i don't allow that we're not playing that game um but if it comes from a, a player who you're like hey this player if he's doing that it's for a reason um this is this is something that like if, if you need to like talk to them or even just give them a look across the table like you sure man and they're like yeah i'm sure okay we'll we'll let this one slide um, cause it, the, the DM does have to referee every once in a while. Um, and if it's that toxic player, who's just, and they always gravitate to rogues or paladins. I don't know why, but it's just, it's always rogues or paladins. No offense. Or, or warlocks. <laughs> no, the, the, the warlock is just the edgy boy, but the, yeah. uh, the, the rogue and the paladin are the, uh, the trolls of the group. <laughs> um, I, and I know this playing both rogues and paladins. Uh, yes, I definitely will admit to that. It's, it's funny too. I, cause to me, what I found works a lot is honestly calling out the behavior by asking the question. So if I see a player do that, I'll be like, Oh, all right. Are you doing this to contribute story-wise or are you doing this because you want more loot and putting them on the spot to consider it? but also not embarrassing them because now they sound like a genius where it's like, Oh yeah. Like I definitely meant to do this storytelling wise, but also it makes it so that other players can discover it. And now it like adds to additional storytelling, but I totally agree. There have also been just as many times as I'm saying that, that there's been a player that just kind of doesn't get it. And even though they genuinely love playing, they don't, respect the teamwork aspect the the interpersonal relationship aspect of the game and sometimes you just have to invite that player not to play anymore as, as harsh and as sad as it may be at times sometimes 
like actually to speak to it on the podcast, I actually have a player that at one point in our D and Ding, I had to say, I'm not DMing for you guys anymore. Now I've invited them back to my latest campaign because they've really demonstrated to me that they want to take this seriously and respect the experience and get out of it what they what I'm intending to put into it. Well, and so every group has one at some point. Um, the thing is that it's something that it usually comes with either too little experience or too much experience. Um, and so it's either the player that has no idea what they're doing and they're used to playing single player Skyrim RPGs and they view everyone else as a side character in their story because this is their first time playing D&D. Or you get the one that plays a lot of D&D and knows better than everybody else. But either way, um, the good thing with that is it's, it's not a permanent issue. And so one of my better players that I've ever DM'd for, uh, our first two campaigns we played, he was terrible. And I wanted to punch him in the face every session. And he's a great friend of mine. Guy was best man at my wedding. Um, and now he knows I want to punch him in the face. But it's okay. I probably tell him that anyway. So um, it's something that his first characters that he made, um, who was a rogue, uh, but his first characters, um, they were always that that edgy solo loner, like, you know, Strider sitting in a bar. I'm here because I have to be. I don't like any of you people kind of characters. And I think what, what ended up changing it for him was he realized he wasn't having fun. And it's there's a whole group for you to interact with and for you to socialize with. They're not your competition. It's your teammates. It's your your friends. Like, God, D and D became so much better after I could drink. But you know, everybody had it's a lot more fun now. But uh, everybody, everybody at the table is all part of this together. And I think it was after after enough time playing and him getting more accustomed to the table talks, to the interactions with the with the other players, with the other characters. Um, he started making as crazy as this was uh, non-optimal builds, which was weird. Because uh, he was very much a how much damage can I do in one turn kind of character. And so when he started making support characters, I kind of raised an eyebrow. And I'm like, are, you're playing a cleric? Are, are you sure? Um, and he's like, yeah, man. He's like, I'm, I'm going healer on this one. And uh, it, it was, it was that, that development as a player. And we've all gone through it. Uh, at some point, every player will go through that. The, the difference between like, being out for yourself and then now realizing you can have a lot more fun if there's six other people having fun with you. A few things on that. First, this is my professional opinion because I have DM'd professionally, not a lot, but a little bit. I think that support characters require the highest level of skill of any of the roles. Oh, absolutely. Um, probably second, it's second only to a true pivot character that can kind of switch roles based on the situation. Um, but uh, the, the other thing I find really interesting is that I actually have the opposite view of rogues. Um, my favorite character I've ever played, uh, Solomon, who's based off of Geralt of Rivia. Um, so was a scout rogue who had an expertise in nature and survival and everything. And he was a lawful good character and I discovered he was lawful good after playing him. 
But one of the things I, I would mention, and it was actually funny, everybody else was trying to play Lone Wolf while I was using Rogue. And one of the things I kept trying to bring up is Rogue's mechanic encourages teamwork because it's, this was before Tasha's, this was years ago I was playing this character. With sneak attack, you either need advantage or you need an ally to be within five feet of your target, or at least a creature that's hostile to your target, right? So to me, I was like, hey, fighter, can you get like next to that guy so that I can uh, flank with you and try to get my sneak attack to go off? Because sneak attack, which is the rogue's main mechanic, encourages you to basically have your teammates set you up with advantage and then deal a whole, whole boatload. But it was funny because a lot of my other teammates didn't recognize that design aspect of Rogue. So even though I'd asked them to give me advantage, they were really reluctant to do it because they didn't trust me because I was just a Rogue. But it was, it was like, I didn't have a stealth proficiency. <laughs> like I, I took my expertises in insight and perception. Um, okay, so, that's fun. Yeah, so it was a very not usual rogue build, but it was it's still my favorite character to play where if I need to join a pickup game or a one-shot, that's the character I usually default to because they have a helpful personality, they encourage team play, um, and it's just funny because it's so unlike what most people will say a rogue is like. That's, that's similar to the, uh, the rogue I'm playing in a game right now because um, I, I, I made him a uh, inquisitive rogue uh, and he's he's a warforged and basically he's a uh, member of the Sharn watch um, and so I basically made him as the warforged cop um, he's a lawful good rogue uh, which has caused more issues than I'd care to talk about um, but no same thing like uh, my stealth is only a plus five uh, he's not great at it I took all of my expertise was going to be in perception investigation and insights um so he can tell and he also has a charisma of eight so he can tell when someone's lying but he can't do anything about it um but no it's it's fun it really changed my view of how to play rogue um trying to basically get sneak attack in other ways um i still think to this day my favorite character i played was my uh gnome cleric um was so much fun i enjoyed that just the the idea of the the true support cast um, he, he didn't do anything on his own. It was, everything was just backup abilities and, uh, he was very confused the entire time. It was fun to role play out. So, uh, to, to dial back the clock a little bit, um, yeah. I'm curious, uh, if you remember, like what motivated you to, uh, to start DMing or game mastering in the first place? Oh, that's easy. Uh, no one else knew how to play. So I, I mean, the, the, the need was there. And uh, I, I was willing and I found that I really loved it. Um, it, it. It really helped with me as a creative outlet um, to be able to write these stories. Um, and it, once, once I got into it, I was hooked. But it, it started off with just the no one else wanted to. It's probably a tale as old as time, yeah. right? It's the one friend that <laughs> that one, or it's the friend that got annoyed that it's like, there's a better, I could be doing this better. And they like use that, that ego to like kind of drive them for their first DMing. 
I strive to defend Nui's Italos and live up to my role as a spiritual leader. I journey to increase my knowledge of the cusp and cosmos. It has been prophesied that there is destiny in my blood. I fight for the honor of the name Steadyhand and the great kingdom of Earth. I wanted to find my true place in the world. I will protect my home and family at all costs. A young ruler's grasp for power threatens an already fractured world. Meet the heroes in Arc 2 of Advantage, a 5th edition D&D audio drama. Find us on all podcast apps. Um, so, uh, so what do you think your, your strengths are as a DM and as a player? Oh, God. Um, strengths. I could tell you weaknesses, but uh, <laughs> uh, strengths. Um, let's see. So I think that one thing, and, and when I say strengths, it's not something I'm inherently good at. It's just I've learned through enough errors to now be good at. Um, and I, I think pri- primary is like we were talking about earlier. It's the communication at the table. My tables are very open. Um, we're, we're there as a group of friends to have fun every week. Um, we just happen to choose to play D&D to do that. Um, so it's, it's something where I, I try to mediate where I have to. Um, most of the time I don't need to. Um, but it's one of those things where I want to make sure that everyone is having fun. And like I said before, if they're not, I'll pull them aside and say, hey, man, what am I doing wrong? What can I do? How can, how can I fix this? What do, what do you need? And sometimes I will be so excited about one particular story that I really want to push, um, like, which is really shining the spotlight on one character that I let someone else's character fall to the wayside. And so... I guess technically that's a weakness, um, but the strength aspect of it is recognizing that saying, oh, wait, hold on. This person is still an integral part of this group. What can I do to shine that spotlight onto them just as much and really give everyone their chance? Well, first, it's just kind of funny. I think a lot of DMs can relate to that, where when they're asked a question like that, they default to, well, I have a lot of weaknesses. I have things that I, I don't really, you know, I'm not proud of as a DM. Um, but, uh, but there are like a few things that you said that I I think were also kind of hidden strengths. So first, if you're not having to mediate a lot of conflicts, like it kind of works itself out. It's kind of speaking to the environment and culture that you have at the table where yeah, conflicts might come up, but as the DM, you don't really have to intervene that much. If you have to intervene at all, that's actually, to me, it's a good thing because it means that your players care enough that they'll actually conflict with each other as opposed to having, you know, a table of four apathetic blobs and, and it feels like a struggle every time you're trying to get them to do anything and look up from their phones, you know? Um, and to me, when you, when you say it's nothing you're naturally good at, it's things you've worked on, to me that speaks to teachability where I think that uh, one of the hidden weaknesses of a lot of DMs is their sense of ego, right? where they think or they identify themselves as being wonderful at a particular thing, that it causes them to be distracted from the idea that they could improve through effort and intention. Being able to admit there are things that I'm working on, these are the things I feel like I'm doing well, um, but I'm working very hard to try to do that. I think that's speaking to an internal resiliency and a teachability that frankly, I wish DM, more DMs had more of. I don't, so 
I, I'm, I'm going to slightly disagree with you. Not entirely disagree. I'm just going to slightly disagree. Um, so I, I think that DMs have that. Um, I, I personally, I don't think that a DM is a specific like class or type of person. I think I fully believe anyone can DM. Um, anytime one of my players says, hey, I want to run a one shot, I say, have at it. I'd love to play today. That sounds like fun. Um, and it's, it's a thing where, yes, you do get ego into it a lot. Um, but again, that's something where just, just like if you're a player, um, you can grow out of. And so I don't think that there's, uh, I, I, I think that DMing is something that it's less, it's less something you can teach, but more something you can learn. And that uh, the, the, the DM uh, role is something that, comes with time and comes with practice and when you get someone that's new uh they're probably going to have a lot of the ego because they're thinking that now i'm a dm like i'm i'm god's greatest gift to tabletop role-playing games um but you really quickly get smacked in the face by your players when you realize you're not in charge of this they are um and it's something that the more you play the better you'll get at it and i i firmly believe anyone can dm um, I don't think that there's bad DMs. I just think there's DMs that need improvement because um, everyone everyone can do it. Uh, I have plenty that I, I still need to improve on. You know, I'm in no way saying I'm a good DM. I just enjoy doing it. That's a beautiful clarification. Thank you for catching me on that. Um, and also just to kind of, so a lot of times where I'm coming from is um, like just to just to clarify that position a little bit. It's mostly coming from looking at Reddit threads or forums and stuff. Oh, well, it's that's actually the opposite. Mistake. It's DMs that have been doing it one way for too long so that when something gets new gets introduced, it's like they get completely thrown off. Um, I completely agree with you that anyone can do it. Anyone can grow out of it. Anyone can improve. Um, sometimes when you look at that part of the internet, you you lose a little faith in are they going to so there's a difference between i i feel like their capacity to grow and their willingness to and i i do and that that's why i say i wish there were more dms that had that kind of uh humility about them where they really have that honest desire to get better at it in this way rather than justify their position um but at the same time I do, I, I agree with you that it's not a specific type of person that just like everyone's going to bring their own insight and their own value because everyone's got a different background as a player to the game. I think that everyone's, everyone can be a fantastic DM because they're going to have different storytelling interests and different design interests that are going to bring something different out of their players, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I think part of it also, because uh, like like we both said, ego can play a large part of it. Um, I think that as players rather than DMs, um, it it falls just as much on the player to keep the DM in check as it does for the DM to keep the player in check. And when you have a DM that's getting to be a problem, and, and like you said, it can happen to veteran DMs just as much. Um, it's something where as a player, you need to be able to take them aside, not embarrass them in front of everybody because that does not get a positive reaction, but be able to take them aside be like, hey man, 
just pro tip here. Like, this is how we were kind of feeling at this. Like, you know, you can try looking at it in a different way, not saying that they're wrong, but giving them an alternative way of doing things. And you know what? Worst case scenario, and I mean worst case scenario, it's a game. And they don't like what you said. And then you guys end up having an issue and you have to go play with somebody else. But you know what? Maybe down the line, the fact that you brought that up at that time will cause them to even six months, a year down the line, say, maybe I need to readjust how I'm doing things. And you can still help them grow through it. Um, so I, again, communications so vital on both ends. Yeah. And I think a big part of it is finding, like you said, not embarrassing them in front of the whole table, but finding ways to make or it smoking them, them on Reddit. Yeah. Finding ways to make it easy for them to listen, you know? So um, I, I know for me, a big thing I used to do is I used to be a rules lawyer um, in terms of like trying to figure out what rules we were playing by. So uh, a big thing that really helped me when I was learning to give DMs feedback in a way that made it easy for them to listen was to frame feedback as a question first rather than a statement. So rather than I don't like how we did this, like a lot of times I'd, I'd ask, so the book says to resolve it this way, is that how you are, is that a way that we're resolving it? Or is there something else going on that we don't know about as players? Because you as the DM behind your DM screen or with your DM notes or your custom world or whatever, you might be playing by special rules. And for us, if we, this is the time to learn those special rules, that now helps us be more engaged players. Um, as opposed to like just saying like, well, that's how the book says it. So I think we should do it this way. You know what I mean? So like. <laughs> so the book is not infallible. And that's something that really needs to be kept in mind so uh one my my general rule is if because you always encounter that thing you're not prepared for in the rules you know you'll flip to the page and you'll read it and you're like well that doesn't make sense um and so what i generally do in my games is we'll encounter something and i'll tell them i'll be like look this is how we're gonna do it today I game every two weeks with these groups. So I'm like, in two weeks, I will have a final ruling for you. But at least for today, we're going to do it this way. Um, if I then decide in two weeks, I'm like, you know what? I'm good with it. Let's keep it that way. Because um, I, I, you always need to let the scenario play out. Um, so let, let them do whatever they're trying to do. If, if you're looking at it, you're like, wow, that's game breaking. Um, let them try it. Okay, if it, if it works and it's fun, Boom, write it in. We're good. Let's do this. That's, that's a new homebrew rule. Um, one, of, one of the uh, uh, best homebrew rules I've had is uh, I had a guy who was playing a um, uh, divination uh, wizard. And uh, so he was he's calling his roles. And uh, he was he was like a 17 or something like that. And he's like, he's like, I wonder if I could get it again. And like he's, he rolled anyway and still got a 17. Um, so our new joke, like homebrew rule at the table, is that every time he calls out a portent and he says it's going to be a 17, he'll roll the die. If it's a 17, he'll still get the, the portent use back because I'm like, ah, we're not going to have a waste it. Um, so like, and that's just because it's fun. It adds a little bit more to, more to his character. There's so much you can do in the rules like, or outside of the rules. There's only so much they can write into the rules. Um, just as framework, and then you can really expand on that however you feel is necessary. 
Um, and then a lot of the rules aren't perfect. Uh, I'm running that hex crawl game and uh, my players quickly found out exactly how long they need to go before they eat. And uh, they can apparently only eat one ration every, like, I think it's like four or five days. And they're fine. There's no negative effects from it whatsoever because of how the rules are written. And I'm like, well, I'm going to have to homebrew that because that's not going to work for me. Um, but it's one where, like I told them, like, we're going to keep doing this. I will give you warning. I'll say, hey, this is my new rule. Next session, that's what's going to start. Today, I'm not going to surprise you with a new rule and say, you now have to play it this way. I'm just giving you forewarning in two weeks, we're going to start playing it that way. Yeah, I definitely, I agree that there's fifth. I love fifth edition. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have its rough spots that can be smoothed out with a little bit of design knowledge and a little bit of homebrew. Um, and, and also it, it kind of helps because like a lot of times when, when I'm playing with DMs, especially ones that are well-versed like you are, sometimes you'll find that they're thinking of a different game. So it's like in Pathfinder, this is how something is handled. But in fifth edition, it's handled a different way. And I, I still find myself referencing third edition rules and being like, oh, that's not a thing anymore. My bad. Right. Uh, a big one I find is the surprise round where yeah. surprise yeah. in fifth edition is like an yep. unofficial condition rather than a yeah. separate round of combat being dedicated to a surprise round before everything else happens. So um, so that's, that's, that's another way that like, I find that asking questions can really help clarify. Cause it's like, you know, I, so maybe surprise round would be really cool for the campaign that we're playing, but also that's not what the fifth edition book says. So just what are we deciding to play by, you know? And it also so, gives the DM, like you said, time to come up with something. Mm -hmm. So if they're like, you know what? I didn't realize that this was a blind spot let me think on it for a little bit. That's a perfectly fine answer. It's just, again, avoiding that kind of accusatory language of you don't know what you're talking about and I know better than you. It like sometimes the, the custom against the rule game experience is just much better than even if you played by the book. But, but at the same point in time, um, whatever decision you make should be subject to change. So just because there's no surprise round uh, doesn't mean there can't be. And if there's that perfect moment where you say, you guys did so well, let's do this. Here's a surprise round. Enjoy yourselves. Everyone at the table is going to have a good time. You don't need to follow the rules to be a complete sticker, stickler every single time. You can tell them, hey, this isn't the rule, but I'm going to allow it because it looks like it'll be fun. That's the whole purpose here. It's not, it's not you versus them. You know, it's everyone having enjoyment at the table. And rule of cool always wins. What's going to be more awesome? What's going to be more badass? Like, what, what do we want to do today? Like, do, it's always the rogue. But does the rogue want to come in swinging on a chandelier? What are we going to do with that? Like, something, something interesting, something more dynamic and more fun. Yeah, and, and one way, because you've mentioned a few times how key communication can be in the success of a session um, one term I've really tried to use for stuff like that is circumstantial ruling, where right now the circumstances, just given what they are, this is how I'm going to rule it. Don't expect this to set a precedent. Like this isn't some kind of thing we can do over and over again, but circumstantially for right now, this is what I feel like doing. And I think that 
especially for new DMs that feel like they have to know everything going in. Cause that's a real anxiety, right? Is like, I don't know the entire rule book. How could I DM my own game? Um, having that in your back pocket where you just want to try something and you're like, you know what? Circumstantial ruling, I think can be a powerful kind of get out of jail free card of just trying new things without your players developing weird expectations. So two things. Uh, one, basically what popped into my head is the meme from uh, Community with uh, Chang with his feet up on the desk and the sombrero just going, I'll allow it. Um, but two, uh, more importantly, um, one thing, anytime I've had someone that wants to start DMing that I'm talking to about it, um, you, you don't need to know the rules to DM. You don't even need to be vaguely familiar with the rules to DM. All you need to do is, hey, DM, I'd like to try this. I right, roll a die. And then whatever they get, either be like, yeah, it worked or yeah, it didn't. You know, you don't even need to have a concrete number in your head. It's just they roll a 17. You're like, ah, good enough. I like it. <laughs> Go ahead. Do what you're trying to do. Um, it's just just roll with it. You know, the, the rules are there as a reference, but they're not set in stone. They're not concrete. You should be there to uh, facilitate the enjoyment of the people at the table. And it, there's surprisingly very little rules knowledge needed for that. And I'd also argue the flip side is also true where I think you said it earlier as well, which is when you DM the, I find the only way to get better is just by doing it over and over again. So even if you say like, theoretically you walk in with an encyclopedic knowledge of all the rules and you have all the handbooks memorized, that's not going to give you a better sense of pace or it's not going to give you a better sense of role playing. You're only going to get better by doing it over and over again. Like even if you, even if you like have memorized everything that doesn't automatically make you a good DM. There's so many other peripheral skills that are involved that it really, the, the knowledge of the rules is relevant but it, like you said, it's by no means like necessary. No, absolutely. I, I agree with that, um, obviously, because I said it as well. But uh, the, you do need to have a working knowledge of it. Um, so I, I kind of step back a little bit from that. You can't just walk in completely blind. Um, but you don't have to have everything memorized. And you know what? If you're a new DM and you say, hey, pause one second and you have to flip to a page in the book to find something, if your players are faulting you for that, they're the problem, not you. Um, you, sh you should feel free to reference the rules as much as you need to. D&D um, &D Beyond, it being on your phone now and searchable is amazing. I have to reference the rule book all the time. I run games every week and I still have to reference the rule book for stuff. You know, like, like you sh you, you, you're not gonna have it memorized verbatim. Uh, and even then, oftentimes, I have to reference the rules. I'll flip to a page. I'll look at it, be like, I don't like that. We're going to do it this way instead. That's fine. Who cares? You know, as long as everyone at the table is smiling and has fun and says we're coming back next week, that's all that matters. Well, and I think that because um, I – what I think that we're really speaking to is more a, a newer DM's anxiety about the game, not even necessarily how it's going – like when I have a new DM and like I'm playing in their game, a lot of times the game is a lot of fun, 
but they don't feel like they're doing a good job even if they are. So they're just, mm -hmm. they're, they're constantly thinking like, oh, if I, I'm taking a lot of time looking up the rules. And like you said, a lot of games right now, just because of everything going on, are virtual. Like I find that when I'm running my games on Roll20, you just open a new tab in your Chrome browser and you just type oh in God, food so and drink 5E and like the answer yep. is instant. You don't even have to flip pages. Um, but uh, the, the idea being that when you give yourself permission to grow, it unlocks a lot of freedoms and it really allows you to enjoy that side of the screen so much more. And, and the other thing is, and this is, you know, coming from a DM, um, if you're a player in a game with a new DM who is obviously nervous, you know, tell them they did a good job because that's all they want to hear. You know, like, like it's as, as much as, as much as you as a player want acknowledgement for your great deeds and whatever baby dragon you slit, you slew in its, you know, sleep or whatever. Um, the, the DM who's new, who's trying this out, you want to encourage them. And you know what? It's beneficial for yourself because if you encourage them and they keep DMing, you get to keep playing. It's kind of a win-win. No one loses here. So just be encouraging, especially when they're obviously nervous like that. Yeah. And to take it one step further too, one of the most beautiful things I've seen recently, just kind of scrolling through D&D content is using stars and wishes as your means of feedback. So a star being something specific that you liked about the game. So rather than a general good job, it's like, I loved that goblin NPC we got to interact with, or I thought that that combat, like, I thought it was like, I really thought we got a lot of cool stuff done in that combat. I got to use a spell I never got to use or something. And then instead of it being a criticism, a wish of like, you know, I wish we had more time to really talk with the goblin elder, or I, I wish that the combat had a little bit more to it, you know? So rather than it being something that the DM did wrong, just kind of pointing to the things that you're excited about in the future, which then gives them space to find a way to give that to you, you know? So whenever, whenever I finish a campaign, um, we always do, like in addition to the session zero at the start, we always do a, a session zero at the end of everybody, everybody sits down um, and talks about what they liked, what they didn't like. Um, I try to keep that what they didn't like on me I don't want them saying what they didn't like about each other. I'm good with it. I'm here listening for the feedback. What I do try to do is I always have an MVP. So I'll do, uh, I'll send out, you know, a text to everybody. They'll text me individually of who they're voting for. And I'll be like, ah, here's a little, little dollar store trophy for our MVP. But I do it by character because if someone ended up losing a character or they died, usually that death is traumatic and amazing. And that's the one that ends up winning. Um, but yeah, I always do like a, like an MVP vote from the other players. I'm like, you can't vote for yourself, but who do you think did the best job and why? Um, and so I'll kind of compile all that and I'll say, hey, your character, because of these reasons, everyone else said that you were fantastic. You did an amazing job because it really rewards the role playing. You know, um, it really pushes them to be better, I guess, to to explore more be less focused on, you know, kicking a door, slice down some bad guys, because those aren't the moments that are going to win it. 
um, what's going to win it is the the tactics. It's going to be the the dramatic moments. You know, the stuff that really sticks in your brain. Yeah, the the Gandalf standing against the Baylor while the rest of the party escapes through the back. So the the best one I had uh, recently was uh, we we actually this was the first time I finished Tomb of Annihilation, and uh, the MVP guy that got it, um, they were in the fight. So spoilers. Um, so there's a fight in the dungeon uh, against an invisible beholder, which is just brutal. And so the party is getting destroyed. And the one player has the realization because there's a there's like a floating orb in the middle of the room that they think is doing all the damage, but it's not. It's the invisible beholder with eye rays that's floating above it. Um, so they're attacking the steel orb and it's doing nothing to it. And uh, he ended up getting just that inkling of an idea. And he ended up using, um, it was like burning hands or something that was like a cone effect uh, to basically hit out and just try to hit. Cause none of them had fairy fire, which would have been amazing. Um, but he ends up, ends up hitting it. And I, I told him, I'm like, you see just the vaguest outline of something as your as your your cone is going out and so he immediately shouts to everybody like hey it's invisible it's up there and then gets disintegrated with an eye beam and dies and so that was his heroic sacrifice of make himself as the wizard an obvious target uh but he made it so that they all figured out that portion of the the puzzle to that combat um, and everybody, like, I, that was one where I sent out the text, like, hey, which character is our MVP? Everyone put him down. There was not a single vote aside from him because he didn't think he did anything great. But there wasn't anyone that said anything else or a spe- any other specific time. They're like, it was Whizbang the Wizard for that exact moment. Everyone agreed on it. And it was just ha- rewarding him with that and being like, hey, man, I know you didn't think this was cool. Everyone else at the table thought this was amazing. And just having that effect on him, I think, really impacted him as a player where it made him start thinking a lot more tactically about it because you rewarded that choice. That, that is a really cool story. Um, as like a side thing, when I ran to him, the way they figured out the Invisible Beholder, um, I had a druid do conjure woodland beings with flying snakes. Oh and he sent this swarm of flying snakes up and basically where they hit the beholder, it was like, oh, there it is. So, <laughs> and so, I did so two, two things on that. One, um, after Whizbang died, uh, he re-rolled a druid specifically so that he would have fairy fire. <laughs> that was the only reason. Um, and then two, uh, so we actually had our ranger in that game um, who was using just standard, uh, I think he was hunter ranger hunter conclave so it wasn't even one of like the optimized ones that dude did some damage like he was actually very effective for a class that's widely touted as like you know just junk unless you use one of the newer subclasses for it oh no he did work but uh anyway he he was using uh the conjure woodland creatures or conjure animals or whatever it is and basically was using them as trap finders and so he would summon gorillas and then make the gorillas pull the levers, and then there would be a fireball explosion, and the gorilla would die. Um, being like, ah, well, I didn't get in that trap. So we're literally, 
I think three rooms from the final fight with the Atropal because yeah, it was it was the Atropal, and then it was the Hag. So it was yeah, a room right before the Hags. So we're literally almost done with this dungeon. We're about a year and a half into this campaign, right? And uh, he said some sort of comment. Uh, I'm like, yeah, you know, you send your your gorillas in and they die, and he goes, ah, they don't die, they're spirits, and I go, dude, they're they're fey. And he has this look on his face and he's like, wait, so they're not undead? And I'm like, no, dude, you're killing fey creatures. He goes, what happens when they die? I'm like, they go to fey death world. I don't know, but they're dead. He's been killing fey this entire campaign. Had no idea because he misread it and thought they were undead spirits. And just this moment of his face paled and he's like, oh, oh my God. Oh my God, what have I done? So jokingly, we started uh, referring to his character as Chirps McGillicuddy, the Fey God of Death. Yeah, no, it's definitely when you consider a lot of the world building implications of some of these spells, that is a really cool way to kind of ground that ability. These, these poor little Fey creatures are just wandering around in the Fey wild, and then they're sucked into the material complain, a plane and die instantly and never come back. And all the other Fey are, what happened? Chirps McGillicuddy got him. That's That's hilarious. Um, so while we're kind of talking about all this different stuff, um, next question is, uh, what are you doing right now to level up your game? So it could be like a weakness you're trying to shore up, or it could just be, you know, everything's going really well. So you want to heighten it somehow, like just how do you, however you want to answer it. I guess it, it really depends on the campaign itself. So, uh, I've, I've got a couple I'm doing. So the, the main two I'm running is um, I have my, my in-person game and I have an online game. So the, the online game, um, this is my first experience with running an online game. Um, I've been making use of Roll20 and slowly learning as much as I can about it. Um, I finally figured out how to put music in, so I'm really excited about that. That's been so much fun for me. Um, being able to DJ fight scenes has been great. Um, but that's one where... I've started using more uh, custom magic items. And so what I've been doing with it is because I want to give them decent rewards, but they're also still kind of low level. So I, they're only level three. I don't want to give them anything crazy. Um, so what I started doing is uh, I actually was inspired a little bit by a couple of the other uh, pre-written campaigns where um, actually a good example is uh, in Lost Minds of Fandelver, um, there's a sword that you can find in, uh, forget, it was underneath the Red Brand hideout. It's a plus one longsword called Talon, and that's it. And it's just a plus one longsword, and it has a name. And I was actually inspired by that. So what I've been doing is I'm making a bunch of plus one weapons. I'm giving them all names. I'm giving them all backstories. And I'm giving them all very unique designs to them. So that way, instead of the players being like, oh, this is just a plus one sword, you know, whatever, I'll keep it until I get a plus two or something better. Um, I'm adding more character and like backstory to the weapon itself, making it more unique. So it feels more like a treasured reward, um, making them feel more unique in that world. Um, so like I, I've, I've written a couple of them. Um, my personal favorite I've done so far um, is I made a, uh, let me actually pull it up real quick because then I can just read you exactly what I wrote. 
but it's a uh, plus one uh, longsword named Harp. Uh, and so there's actually in Tomb of Annihilation, there's a uh, mini dungeon that you can go to, uh, which is basically a, a guard, uh, palace garden. Um, and it's actually the queen that is supposed to be interred there is actually alive and she's a Medusa. And so uh, I actually have this weapon um, they find by, as they're going through this garden, there's uh, all the, you know, quote unquote statues that are just adventurers that were turned to stone. And so one of them has a sword held aloft, which is now also stone. Detect magic reveals it's still magical. So they literally break the sword off of the statue and now they have a solid stone sword but it still maintains its sharpness because of the uh the magic behind it um so i actually like wrote down again it's just a plus one long sword all i did is i made it heavy which doesn't affect anyone because no one is a small character so it's just a flavor effect and i wrote a uh, battle-worn blade turned to stone by a gorgon's gaze this heavy stone earthen sword still radiates with a magic that regrettably could not save its previous bearer in life. Perhaps it can serve you better. And uh, just that little flavor to it has made that reward of a very basic magic weapon significantly better. That I actually, this has been an area of interest of mine for a while. Um, like if I have, I have a very few criticisms of 5e, but the places I do criticize it, I'm pretty pretty intense um i i really <laughs> i don't like the magic item progression um my biggest like example i always bring up is ring of protection and cloak of protection have the exact same function one is a ring one is a cloak one is rare one is uncommon what's that about um it's it doesn't <laughs> it's to me it's like that's like the dumbest <laughs> but um i also found that i didn't like how Basically, once you got a plus one weapon, there was no reason not to use it because creatures in 5e, if you're going by like the standard sap blocks and stuff, basically they usually have resistance to non-magical weapon damage. And also there's no cost to using a plus one weapon. So it's basically you just get to, if you have a weapon and you find a magic weapon, you just use the magic weapon all the time. And even things like rust monsters will specifically say it rusts non-magical metal. Magic weapons, when you read a lot of stat blocks or a lot of trap effects, it's like magic weapons just like aren't affected. Um, unless, of course, you homebrew it like with the Medusa's yeah. Gaze Sword. Yeah. So I can actually send you this document. But one of the things I did being inspired by uh, the Final Fantasy VII remake for the PS4 is as part of the game structure I have for my latest campaign, I let my players build their own magic items. So I give them a list of these are ways that you can mundanely upgrade your weapon. Like maybe you give a plus one bonus to attack rolls or a plus one bonus to damage rolls, or they get some other kind of property. Maybe you, instead of a plus one thing, you make it finesse if you want to do a weird dex build or something. But then I also have a list of what I call spell gems, which are basically enchantments like in Skyrim. So the enchantment and the mundane stats of like plus one finesse that the weapon tags, they basically get to build their own equipment that way. Um, so I can send that to you if you want some inspiration. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested in that. One of the things that I actually, uh, <clears throat> so I've, I will admit, um, I don't watch a lot of Critical Role. And part of it is that 
Matt Mercer is so good at what he does. I feel inferior every time I watch it. Um, but one thing that he uh, did with uh, which book was it? Because I think they came out with two for Critical Role. It was um, it wasn't one of the official D and D Beyond ones that I that I found. But I, I bought a campaign setting uh, in his world. And one thing that he did is they 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 have it's like vestiges of power or something like that. I forget exactly what they called them. And uh, it was the first time I ever read of the idea of a magic item that levels up. And just that concept was mind blowing to me. Um, and it, it added so much of like, if you, if you, it, it brings it back to almost third edition where they used to be like, oh yeah, if you, you know, sacrifice 300,000 gold, then it will get all of these crazy powers. Um, which I thought was stupid, but uh, just the idea of you're carrying this weapon around. Um, how did a sentient magic weapon come into being? Was it always sentient? Did it gain sentience? Um, and so it's the idea of through use, you start getting new abilities unwake, uh, awakened in this item that it didn't know it had in the first place. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. And that's something that obviously I can't use right now because my party is too low level. Um, but that's something that I'd like to start experimenting with in the future, the idea that their their weapons progress with them. Now, um, to backtrack to a previous point you made um, with once you get that plus one weapon, all right, you now have a plus one longsword. You are never going to use anything else ever. Um, so I've always been of that mindset of, oh, yeah, now I've got the weapon. This is where it's at. We're cool now. I've got sting. Let's do this. Um, so my wife is actually very tactical and in all of her combat. And so she was the one that ended up getting Talon, the plus one longsword. And don't get me wrong. She was using it all the time. Any, cause she was playing as a paladin. And so anytime she's got a, you know, sword and board it, it was, it was always that plus one longsword, but, uh, she actually frequently would swap it out for a polearm. Um, because she would need that extra feet. So if they were in any sort of like a like a confined hallway and she couldn't be up front, she was always swapping it out for the pole arm so she could be second in line and still poke things over the, over the first person like a you know Greek spear wall. Um, and it 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 worked very well. Um, so I, I would never discount other weapons. Well, I mean I I used to discount other weapons, but having now seen that, um, it's something that I just. I want to remind other players or educate them in the first place. Like I had to be educated by someone that had never played D and D before. Cause she was brand new at the time. Um, each weapon is going to have its own uses. And just because this one can overcome magic, uh, non-magical weapon resistance. Um, if you're not fighting something that has that resistance, you don't necessarily have to use the plus one. The plus one is good, but if you have another weapon that might tactically be better suited for that situation, be it um, be it something that's uh, uh, two-handed, be it something that, like if, if you have a, a plus one greatsword and you say, you know what, it's better to sword and board with this one. I need that plus two AC for this fight because this fight is more of a slugfest than saving throws. Then you go into a fight against some sort of wizard and you say, all right, wizard, meet great axe. Let's do this. Um, then you can swap weapons. And so especially with how the 5e mechanics are, um, as long as you've got the carrying capacity, which you do, 
because you can carry a mountain of stuff with you in this game. Uh, you don't have to explain where that weapon is. It just disappears into your backpack. So, Tim, this has been freaking amazing. Thank you so much um, for coming on and joining me. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say before we, uh, we wrap up? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This was fun. Um, I, I think that if, if we're going to leave anybody with anything, it, it would just be uh, the key points of uh, remember that DMs are players too <laughs> and try to be as encouraging as you can for a new DM. Um, and then if you are the DM, just remember that your players are also playing this game. It's, it's about everybody at the table. It's not about one specific individual or even just a couple people. It's everyone at the table is supposed to be having fun. And you know what? The best way to make sure everyone's having fun is just ask them. And then they will tell you what they need to have fun. And you guys can easily work with that. So it's kind of my, my final takeaway. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now.